0: Thank you for listening to a sermon from the District Church. For more information about us, please visit www.thedistrict.church. Additionally, if any of our sermons have brought encouragement to you, would you please let us know by emailing us at infothedistrict.church? At well, good morning, everyone. Merry Christmas Eve of the Eve of the Eve. I believe is what we are today. And so I know that's kind of becoming like one of the cultural norms now of churches doing either a Christmas Eve service or an Eve of the Eve, or, or we're doing the Eve of the Eve of the Eve. And uh, so it's good to be with you today. And uh, I'm going to start it off with something a little different and awkward. And so like I drank a lot of coffee this morning, um, and so I'm a little jittery, but at the same time, I need to use the restroom. So we are going to... <laughs> have just a time of fellowship and meet and greet. And so get up and uh, go say hi to somebody, shake their hand, and and I'll be right back. So. <laughs> all right, all right. It sounds like we should do this more often. Apparently, y'all are getting into good conversations. I feel less jittery now, so it's good. I did wash my hands, yes. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Uh, Well, good morning again. And uh, open up your Bibles to John 1. We're going to be looking at verses 14 through 18 this morning. Um, We've been going through an Advent series, and this Advent series has been just revealing for us light coming into Darkness. Um, It's been this idea of as we we wait for a savior, what does that actually mean for us? What does it mean that God sent Jesus into the world to redeem the world, to save the world? And so it had multiple implications for us um, as we looked in the first week of uh, John 1, 1 through 5. um, The fact that this word that was coming into the world uh, is God, um, that he's full of his deity, that he... Represents everything that is the character, holiness, and perfection of God Himself. And so the Word was in the beginning, and the Word was with God, and the Word is God. And so Jesus is not some um, secondhand idea. He's not some um, created being. Like He is God Himself and is dwelling among us. And then we also look the second week in the sense of this idea of heralds or um, these messengers that God uses to. To display his glory, to share his news, to be able to kind of um, prepare the way for everyone who's going to come to know him. And so God uses us, like he used John the Baptist, to be able to be uh, a testimony or to testify about Jesus who was coming. Um, not only that, he also used shepherds to be able to herald this news of a baby being born that was going to redeem and save people. And so God uses us in his redemptive plan, in his ministry. He employs us to be able to play a part in it. And so we are not in involved in some type of spectator um, religion. We we are not sitting on the sidelines. We are actually in the game playing a part as God is Um, moving the ball down the field, if you will, as he is redeeming and reconciling and saving people. And then last week, we looked at this idea of, okay, what does it actually mean when we say light comes into darkness? And we looked at just the the reality of salvation, the reality of, of why Jesus came. And it was a beautiful service for us because not only did we get to look at that reality of of what light is doing in the midst of darkness, but we got to see it play out. We got to dedicate baby Sullivan to the Lord as we were praying for God to work in his life through um, the ministry of his parents in raising him, as well as the ministry of the church coming around them and supporting them and encouraging them and just kind of dedicating ourselves as the covenant community of faith to say We want to share the gospel with one another at all times, including those who are just born, including those who are upstairs right now um, being watched over and being prayed over and being read stories of Jesus to them. Um, At all points of life, we want to give one another the gospel. And that's what we dedicated last week. And then we also got to see that actually come to fruition in the life of Talia when we baptized her at the end of the service um, as just an image of of an illustration of light has come into darkness and has given her life, life in Christ, life to the full. And so we get to celebrate that. And today what we're going to be looking at is... Going along the idea of kingdom economics that I mentioned a few weeks ago, that kind of is a term that Tim Keller dubbed several years back. This idea of kingdom economics, what does it mean that this light, this word of God becoming flesh, how is God using that to essentially um, go countercultural to our society? to our world, to the way that we would do things? And how does that have implications for how we go about living our lives on a daily basis? And so I wanna read with um, John 1, 14 through 18. So just follow along with me as we dive into this. Verse 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, known. Father, we thank you for this passage that we get to read and that we get to meditate on this morning. Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit who guides us in understanding the truth would be doing that in our hearts and our minds right now. As, as I just kind of unravel this text for us, um, Lord, that it would come to life in our hearts and our minds and that it might change our perspective on how we view life and how we view grace and how we view truth all for your glory um, and for our joy. It's in your name we pray, amen. So the first thing I wanna look at is this idea of the word becoming flesh. And I've got really three points for us today. Um, The first one will be the word becoming flesh. The second point um, will be how he reveals his glory to us in grace and truth. And then the third one is, is how do we receive this grace upon grace. And the first one, word becoming flesh, we're going to deal with a lot more than the other two. So if you feel like I'm in this point for a while it's intentional that I'm in this point for a while. And instead of kind of landing the plane slowly, it's just gonna be a free fall on the last two points. So it's just, they're just gonna end very quickly at the, at the end of this because all of it really hinges on this word becoming flesh and what God is doing when it comes to this. Because the reality is, is God became a man. And that's kind of a hard concept for us to understand. God became a man. God humbled himself to the point of becoming a man and as we know in Luke 2, giving us the account of his birth, he came in the form of a baby in a manger. And if you're city folk, a manger is a barn, essentially, with animals in it. And so it's, it, it's God humbling himself to the point of becoming a man, the word becoming flesh, as a baby in a manger. And there's some very significant realities along why God chooses this route. Because God could have chosen any route for him to come and ultimately redeem humanity. Like if, if we were created beings and we rebelled against him and we sinned against him and he's going to then fix our rebellion, fix our sin, fix our issues, he's God. He's the one who's created everything. He can create then however he wants to redeem us, to reconcile us, to, to fix our issue, to fix our sin. He literally could have just wiped us all off the face of the planet and just started over with a new Adam and a new Eve. He could have done that. But he chose instead to go this route of using this redemptive plan in order for himself to literally humble himself to the point of becoming a baby in a manger. And the first thing I want to look at is what God's doing in this story of a baby being in a manger. God, like an expectant father could not help but just shout the good noise of the arrival of his son. After waiting many long years, Christ was here and the father being so excited to reveal Jesus just lines up the angels, just a multitude of angels. And they just start declaring as Luke 2, 14 and the story says, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. What the angels are singing there is the heart of of God, At last, I'm bringing peace to this chaotic, dreadful, sinful world. And it brings God glory. And as it says, it brings God pleasure. Like it's pleasing the Lord to announce to us this baby being born. I love what Paul says in Galatians 1, 15 through 16, where he says, but when he who had set me apart before I was born, who called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son to me. The father in heaven loves to put his son on display. Loves to put his son on display. He loves to reveal him. He loves to make him known. He loves to call others to him. And I feel like as a father, and and, and even Jordan kind of shared this in the confession, like there's this nine months of kind of expectancy, waiting, this angst of your child being born. And I just feel like I'm able in some way relate with the father as Jesus is being born and him wanting to shout the good news and it bringing pleasure for him to reveal him to others because of how we respond as parents when our children are born. Like our Instagram accounts change. Like, no longer is it about, like, look at this food that I just ate. Like, it's, look at my baby. I know no one's asking to look at them, but I want you to look at them. And, like, literally 12 out of the first 15 Instagram posts after Ezra was born was about Ezra. It was like, look, his arm's the size of my thumb. This is crazy. And, like, no one else cares. But I care and I like it brings me pleasure to share him with others. And so like on some level, I feel like I can relate with the Father and understanding his pleasure of revealing the Son to us, sharing the Son with us. God the Father is infinitely pleased to reveal him. It makes God happy. Like it just simply makes him happy to show us Jesus. And I feel like that's a point that that right now you're like, yeah, I understand that. I don't think we think about that enough. I really don't. I think we view God like the Ebenezer Scrooge up in heaven who's like bah humbug over his children at all times. We don't view God in the sense of like this giddy father who's like sitting at the, at the manger like we are at the nursery like, or in the, in the hospital at the nursing wing just looking in at the children that have just been born and we're just ooing and gahing over these children. That's what the father is doing over Jesus. Like he's happy and giddy and it brings him so much pleasure that he has sent Jesus to be born as a baby in a manger. I love that view of God. It changes the way in which I want to approach him on Christmas morning every single year when we are um, literally reflecting on the birth of his son, Jesus. We need to see God more like that, that he can't wait to share him with us because there's nothing more that pleases him than that. Now, there's more significance to this Jesus becoming flesh There's great significance in the fact that the second person of the Trinity, and what I mean by that is we believe in a Trinitarian God. We believe that God the Father is God, that Jesus Christ the Son is God. We believe that the Holy Spirit is God. We do not believe that the Father is Jesus. We do not believe that Jesus is the Holy Spirit, but we believe that they each exist as distinct persons in eternity as God. So the Father is fully God. Jesus is fully God. Holy Spirit is fully God. But they are not each other. They're distinct. And Jesus, second person of the Trinity, has chosen to come and exist for 33 years as a humble man. God in the form of a man. We call this in theological terms as the hypostatic union where Jesus is fully God and he is also fully man. It's not 50-50 and it's not at times I'm going to you know kind of um, dabble in my deity and at times I'm not going to dabble in my deity. No, at all times he is fully God and at the same time he is fully man. So he gets hungry like we get hungry. He has to sleep like we have to sleep. He's a man, and God chooses this route, and there's a specific reason why he chooses this route. There's significance to this, and I want you to see the significance because this begins to shape for us a different way of living life that is contrary to the way that our society wants you to live life. And it's Philippians 2, and I want you to turn there. Philippians 2, we're gonna look at verses 3 through 11. Why does God become flesh? Verse 3 says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind, this perspective, have this mind. God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Kingdom economics here. And what I mean by that is there's a way that God does things that seems dumbfounded to the way we would do things here on earth. Almost everything we do is in search of the best of the best. Literally. Everything we do is of the best of the best. I love burgers. I want to find the best burger of all burgers. Now, I also know that I have very low expectations of a good burger, so I really haven't had a bad burger yet. But I'm still in search of the best of the best. Everything. When traveling for vacation, we want the best hotels we can afford. Same thing when buying a house. We want the best house that we can find in our budget. When hiring an employee, same thing when looking for a starting quarterback. In just about every domain of life, in every culture of life, we're searching out the best of the best of the best. Really, except for maybe shopping for groceries. We'll go like Kroger, Great Value, whatever. Like We'll, we'll kind of go the knockoff route on some things. But for the most part, we want the best of the best. God does not use this mentality. He doesn't use this mentality because it robs him of showing off his glory. It robs him of being able to show his strength, his power, and his magnificence. Let me show you God's kingdom economics in scripture, and I'm not making this up. It's significant why the savior of the world is born as a weak, dependent baby in a manger. 1 Corinthians 18 through 31, you don't have to turn there. But he says for this, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where's the scribe? Where's the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? What he's essentially saying there is there's a way that people feel is the right way to live. They've they've studied, they've mastered arts, they've they've done everything they can to create a culture or a society in which they think is going to flourish. It's it's in a way in which they think this is the best way to live for your enjoyment, for, for your own pleasure, whatever it looks like. And they want you to live that way. And they say, it would be wise for you to live that way. And God's saying, that your wisdom he is making foolish because he has a different way of living that actually leads to your flourishment and your joy. For since, in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demanded signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Which there's really no foolishness of God and there's really no weakness of God. He's just saying the means by which he's deploying seem foolish and weak in our way of viewing world and society. And so then he now flips it on its head and he says why he chooses foolishness and weakness to display his glory in verse 26. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. When we think about Jesus, he was not of noble birth. He did not come from a prestigious family. He did not come from um, a royal family. He was born to a broke family, a poor family in a, a, literally a manger because they could not find any room anywhere in the city for him to be born. So God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boasts in the Lord. So God is creating for us scenarios that literally make it impossible for us to be able to say, look at how awesome I am. But rather says, look at how awesome he is for turning this situation into something that's glorious. God using the weak to shame the strong. Take David and Goliath, for example. Literally, Goliath would come out time after time after time again and say, who dares comes and fights me? Literally, we're basing this entire war between the Israelites and the Philistines on two people fighting. And whoever wins gets all. And the Philistines would send out Goliath, who, according to our standards, is over nine feet tall. And as and he literally just standing ahead over everybody that's around. And he's saying, Who's willing to come out and, and try me? And at the end of the day, the Israelites shaking time and time again, even Saul himself just hanging out in a cave or hanging out under a tree. like He's like, I'm not going to go out there. And what it says of Saul is that he actually stand a foot higher than any other Israelite. Like when they looked for a king to rule their people, to literally be the one who, who they can look at as a standard of strength And power and might, they found no one other than Saul himself. It's the reason why they put him in the position of king was because he was considered the best of the best of the best. And what was Saul doing? He was just shaking in his boots. I don't know if he wore boots or not, but he was just shaking in his boots over in the wilderness. Literally, I'm not going out there and fighting him because I like my position right now. I don't want to go out and die. And so they literally would go after one after another, one after another. Anybody willing? Anybody willing? Nobody was willing. And then you have David, who's not even in the battle. He's just back at home watching over the sheep because he was a shepherd. He's just watching over the flock of the family. He's just doing his dirty work. And literally he is sent to bring food to his brothers who are in war and to give them word of just kind of how things are going on back at home. And he shows up, and because of the gossip of everyone talking about this Philistine, David's like, well, what's the big deal? Don't we have God on our side? What's the big deal with this Philistine? They think he's powerful and mighty. Don't you know who we serve as, as our Lord, as our God? And David's like, not in his own ability and his own strength, but in the ability and strength of the Lord. He's like, I'll go out there. Tell the king, I'll go out there. And he does. And God uses the lowest of the low. Even Jesse, David's dad, is like, uh, no, David. It's kind of like uh, it's me sometimes with our kids where I'm like, just don't say a word. Like, you're just gonna literally expose like just the idiocy within the Gibbs You know. Just don't say anything. Like, Dave, like I can picture Jesse like, David, just go hide yourself. He's like, I want to start with the top. I want to start with my best son. And then literally the Lord just keeps working down. And he's like, nope, nope, too strong, too brawn, too smart. Nope, good strategy in fighting. I don't like any of that. Oh, don't you have a son? You have David? He knows how to feed and protect sheep. Let's go with David. Send him out there and I'm going to use him to defeat this Goliath. He uses the most weak, shameful thing that they would consider, and he defeats Goliath. Same thing happened with Gideon. Gideon was going to come in an army, and he was going to defeat the enemies. And God's like, you know what, Gideon? You have too many horses, too many chariots. You have too many soldiers. Let's just start dwindling those numbers down. Gideon's like, all right, let's just take a 1,000 out. He's like, no, no, no. I want you to take 100,000 now. I want you to just keep going. I just want you to get rid of your ranks all the way down to where literally, if you're like a fantasy football person, it's like, let's start one against nine and let's just expect that one to dominate and win. It's like, no, no, no. Like it's, it's the projected numbers here are not gonna work out for me. I'm going to lose. God's like, that's exactly where I want you to be. I want you to be in a place where you are expecting to lose so that I can show up with my strength and my power and my might and do something that you consider to be impossible so that at the end of this victory, you're left standing with, man, God did this work. I'm boasting in him and I'm not boasting in me because I did nothing. I did nothing he used an unattractive broke homeless carpenter as a savior versus an attractive wealthy prestigious religious zealot as a savior this is god's kingdom economics now in that there's still this intrinsic need we have to be exalted we may see those points david and goliath and think yeah i love that i love that it's it's a great movie Because you've got this weak person who rose to the ranks, who defeated Goliath. But then what happens to David? He becomes king. It's a happy ending. We love that. So a lot of times we come from this posture of, I'll humble myself because I'll know that I'll be exalted. There's this intrinsic need of us to try to use God's kingdom economics to get what we're still actually after, the best of the best of the best. It kind of makes it an impossible situation for us. The only way for us to do nothing from selfish ambition, to actually humble ourselves as Philippians two states, to actually have this mind among ourselves, to see how God uses the weak to shame the strong, is to have this mind in Christ Jesus. It's only in Christ Jesus that we humble ourselves. It's only in Christ Jesus that this actually works for us. This is the beautiful glory of Jesus Christ that in him, considering the interest of others, came to us as a gift for us to unwrap his glory. So as we receive him, we are able then to start considering the interest of others, to actually begin humbling ourselves. It's glorious for God to use the weak things of this world to display his strength. So this weak, dependent baby in a manger, who as Isaiah says, is a baby with a face only a mother could love. That's not what Isaiah says. That's my paraphrase. (laughs) Isaiah 53.2 actually says, he had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. According to the NASB it says, "No appearance that we should be attracted to Him. So in God's kingdom economics, He sends Jesus in the form of a weak, ugly, broken, underprivileged family to display His glory. We wouldn't write the story that way. But with that in mind, think about our John 1:14 verse. "The word became flesh and dwelt among us. That ugly baby is what God uses to dis- display his glory. We have seen his glory as of the only son from the father. And what is his glory? It's the fact that he's full of grace and truth. He's glorious because he's full of grace. What is grace? I'm glad you asked. You may have heard the definitions of grace and mercy as this. Grace is when God gives you what you don't deserve, And mercy is is when God withholds what you do deserve. And those are true. Both of those are correct. Grace is God giving you what you don't deserve. But I believe there's a lot more to that. There's salvific grace. And what I mean by that is salvation-based grace. Where Titus 2.11 says the grace of God has appeared. Grace has come. And it's bringing salvation for all people. That is the grace of God. The grace of of God is him giving us salvation. We don't deserve it. He's giving it to us as a gift. It's when God grants eternal life. It's when he grants forgiveness of sins. He grants perfect union and relationship with Jesus for all eternity. That's salvific grace. But according to our John 1 passage, we have received grace upon grace. So there's level to his grace. There's volume to his grace. There's the grace for then, and then there's also the grace that we receive now. Grace upon grace is like, as I like to think of it, just a seven-layer dip. The more you keep dipping in, the more glorious Jesus is. Like there's a volume to this grace. His grace leads us into experiencing the deeper realities of grace, which not only include an eternal joyful life with Jesus in the future, but also a present joyful life with Jesus now by living out heaven on earth. And what does Jesus pray in his Lord's prayer? Thy will be done in heaven or on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus wants things on earth to operate and function like they do in heaven. He wants relationships to function like they do in heaven. So he didn't come to earth just to save us and say, good news, one day this will all be better. So good luck until then. I've saved you, I've redeemed you. One day heaven's gonna be great. I'll see you then. That's not what he says. He says, peace among you. As I come and save you for then, but also save you in the here and now. There's grace and truth for us now. Joy now. I can give you a way of life that produces joy now. So not only does he come with grace, but he also comes with truth. He is glorious because he's full of truth. And truth is the way of life that God creates and defines for the flourishment of humanity. And this flourishment of humanity brings glory and praise to God. There's a way of life that makes God look good. And there's a way of life that, that, that makes humanity flourish. God doesn't just leave us to figure out what that way of life is. He provides us truths through his word that define for us a way of life, a way of living that bring us flourishment and him glory, that bring us joy and him glory, that bring us pleasure and him glory. He's not a God who gives us kind of a piece of Ikea furniture and just says, figure it out. You won't. There's instruction manuals in there that say, put this piece here and you'll eventually get there. You'll be able to enjoy this furniture. You'll be able to sit on it, nap on it, eat on it, whatever it is, you'll be able to enjoy and experience it in the here and now. And that's exactly what the Bible is for us. God's provided his word to us as truths about who he is, his character, his way, his truth, and his life that are not only for us salvific faith, salvific grace, but are also a way of living grace. That's why I love Titus 2:11, where it says again that he has brought for us grace has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to live lives that follow him. It trains us to renounce ungodliness and to live lives that are self-controlled. It trains us. Grace literally trains us on how to be in a marriage it trains us on how to raise kids it trains us on how to interact in conflict it trains us on how to discipline ourselves it trains us on literally every aspect of life in every domain of life grace is instructing us on what's going to bring pleasure glory praise and honor to god and also pleasure, joy, excitement of life, fill in the blank, whatever you want, for us. Grace and truth have come. And the last point, and like I said, just a free fall here, and we just receive it. We receive it. We have received grace upon grace. What does it mean to receive something? You're not working for it. You're not earning it. You're not trying to build a case for why someone should give you something. You're just simply, arms open, receiving. Responding with gratitude, thank you. The word became flesh, dwelt among us in the most unlikely way God sent a savior to not only save us for the future, but to save us now. And for us to experience a gift of Jesus Christ, who embodies all of grace, all of truth, so that in Him we receive grace upon grace, life to the fullest, as John 10:10 10, 10 says. That's Christmas. That's Christmas. That's what we're celebrating. That's the reason for the season. That's the reason why we're generous in these moments is because we've received all that we need in Christ and we're then free to give all that we have to others. It begins to change the mindset of not what I get, but now let me consider the interest of others. Let me humble myself because I am exalted, but I'm only exalted because I'm in Christ who God exalted to sit at his right hand. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for your goodness. We thank you for the way that you bring about life. We thank you for your good gifts. As your word says, every good gift comes from above. We ultimately thank you for the good gift of Jesus Christ the ultimate light coming into darkness. You sent your son to be born in a manger. And today we celebrate that reality, that beautiful truth. We thank you, Lord. We receive this. We receive it with gratitude, humble gratitude because There's nothing in it that we can boast in other than boasting in you. You're awesome. You are awesome. And us giving you praise is the greatest thing for our souls. And so Father, as we enter into just a time of communion and song and prayer, God, just give us rest in our souls that this is something that we get to sit and receive. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As I said, we will finish with communion. And again, this is you just receiving. Thank you for listening to a sermon from the District Church. For more information about us, please visit www.thedistrict.church. Additionally, if any of our sermons have brought encouragement to you, would you please let us know by emailing us at info at